Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here with another episode of Ranching Reboot, the podcast where we discuss ideas outside of mainstream ranching with some of today's most innovative producers of all things edible. With me as always is my best buddy and co-host CK. But before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank all of our listeners for the positive feedback and messages you've sent. It's very encouraging to both of us and we can't thank you enough. Come join us in our private Facebook group, Ranching Reboot Paddock. Today's guest is a self-styled grass nomad. She has made pilgrimages from North Carolina to California, New Mexico to Montana. She's been trying to relearn the ancestral approach to land management, practicing thoughtful grazing and observing soil health from horseback. Please welcome to the show, Ariel Greenwood. How are you today, Ariel? I'm doing good. I'm glad to be on the show with the both of you. Awesome. Thank you for having us. So, Grass Nomads. Um, and I follow you on Instagram and have for some time and you guys bounce back and forth between different parts of the country. So where are you at now and where have you been this? Sure. Yeah, we have kind of a, a rotation, you might say. Um, so maybe we should be grass semi nomads because we do have a bit of a circuit, but right now we are in Northeastern New Mexico, um, and we, uh, run a ranch for a cattle company that my man, Sam is a partner of, mm-hmm. so he's managing partner of the cattle company. Um, it's a five person company based in Mexico. And then Sam and I kind of operate, uh, as grass nomads, LLC for our work here in New Mexico and up in, we kind of spend about five months of the year in Montana and about seven months in New Mexico. That's what we've been doing the past couple of years. And some of that could change in the future, but for now that's sort of our rotation works pretty well. So let's get into that a little bit. Why, uh, why do you do that? Do you bring the cattle back and forth or, uh, what? Yeah, good question. Um, there's a few advantages to it. And um, like many things, some of it is part of a, you know, deliberate plan and some of it's just responding to opportunities. Um, we don't bring cattle back and forth. We pretty much just bring ourselves and our horses and dogs and some books and things like that. Um, up in Montana, we work on a seasonal basis for Cayuse Livestock Company, mm-hmm. um, Wyatt Donald, um, who some of your listeners might, might be familiar with. And uh, he's a really excellent manager of land and cattle and um, got connected to my partner, Sam, through Zach Jones a few years back. And um, we're actually spend a lot of our time on a ranch up there where Sam got his start many years ago, because Sam is also not born into ranching. Mm -hmm. Um, And up there, we manage a couple of different ranches that are within about a half an hour of each other. And um, so that started off a few years ago with Wyatt connecting with Sam. And then Wyatt got a lease on another place, um, just, just a few miles down the road. And around that time, Sam and I had thrown in our lot together, so to speak. So it worked out pretty well for us each to sort of have a ranch that we could run. Um, and that's yearling cattle up there and mm-hmm. so we work together and kind of each sort of have our domains, so to speak, but help each other out. And, and that works out pretty well. 
so that was just an opportunity that came around that um, we were able to kind of grow with. And um, I think, you know, we have a lot in common with Wyatt and with Cayuse Livestock. You know, we care a lot about pretty rigorous grazing planning and record keeping. Um, and we care a lot about trying to improve the health of the soil and the range um, through thoughtful grazing and thoughtful impact. And we all really prioritize good stocking. We're trying to improve the livestock as a result of our handling them. And, um, and that's, I, I think that's good, not just for the cattle themselves sort of in their own right, but also for their use of the land and for our bottom line. And then our relationship here in New Mexico is that was a cattle company that Sam has been a part of for about six years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that works out pretty well. It's a, it's a creative arrangement to manage cattle, manage cows on a seasonal. So it takes a lot of collaboration, communication, problem solving, you know, a lot of things are how do you hand off and inform- share information, right. things. So we're still in the learning curve of that, but um, we think it has, it's a, it's an arrangement that has a lot of potential. So let's talk about, let's talk about your background. Sure. So tell us where you came from and how you got where you are. All right. It's, it's interesting. I get asked that question a lot and I always wonder like, what will my response be this time? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, with every passing year, I gain more visibility of, of, you know, understanding myself and my decisions and motivations and kind of what went into my being um, and probably forget some factors too. So uh, I'll give you what I think is the most accurate answer to date subject to change. Um, well, on, on a more straightforward basis, I'm from North Carolina. That's where I was born and raised and went to college. And then, um, I started farming in my late teens. I kind of found a local sort of uh, sustainable vegetable and perennial plant farm through a community college I was going to, and I started volunteering. And that was in 2007. So I don't know when, you know, movies like Farm Inc. and books like The Omnivores Dilemma came out, but it was somewhere right around then. So I was pretty swept up in the small family farming kind of movement. Um, and I'm glad for that time. I'm glad that there was a lot of momentum to kind of um, fall into sort of effortlessly just by virtue of the work I was doing and the peers I was hanging out with. Um, these days, I think there's a lot of healthy criticism of some sense of that move we can yeah. discuss or not. But, but it was a, a good time for me. And, um, and I went on to study uh, both agroecology and psychology in college and worked on farms during that time. And then I moved out to California, got a job that didn't really pan out, but it was a good sort of exposure to the wild and woolly world of semi-absentee land ownership and, oh, yeah. you know, integrated livestock yeah. uh, and kind of a crash. That that job, first job in California was kind of a crash course. In, um, the big disparity between intention and result and mm-hmm. really affirms a lot of my instincts that a lot of our barriers, truly regenerative agriculture are not lack of knowledge, but a lot of the times it's the social systems that are not in place and need innovation. So after that, uh, late 2014, I found um, a herd of cattle to work with. Uh, a gentleman had some cows on a nature preserve, actually, and he had sort of a, a free lease arrangement in exchange for managing the cattle in a way that was in line with what the nature preserve cared about, which was um, trying to sustain the grasslands by um, pretty targeted grazing and keeping back some of the brush, etc. Things that um, can be uh, can be harmonized with animal performance, but oftentimes are not. Um, so that was an interesting interesting learning curve. I was out there for two and a half years and lived on site, which was pretty sweet. Um, and uh, I learned a ton about 
self-sufficiency and problem solving and working in bad weather and bad conditions and uh, sort of uh, intuited my way into a lot of low stress stock handling principles just by virtue of having to move a small herd, but herd nonetheless of different classes of cattle alone across this landscape. And, um, and I, I used one or two strands of electric fence, GP, polypipe, you know, all over the ranch above ground, fortunately, very management intensive and not particularly efficient relative to our goals at the time, but it was a good, um, a good stepping stone for me. And, um, and from there I was hired to manage the grazing for a ranch in Northern California that had a few uh, a few ranches and, um, and a grass fed program. And I had kind of started my own grass fed label, fledgling label at the time, just to try to sort of pay my pay, pay myself for my work. Um, mm-hmm. so I was able to, um, build on and expand those skills and was taking formal courses and, you know, holistic plan grazing and land monitoring and that kind of thing at the time too. So, um, that's, that was sort of my entry into, cattle and livestock and land and management on a larger scale. That's great. I really like that line. A crash course, asperity, but tension mm-hmm. and risk. That's it's a really real neat. thing. Um, so, yeah. So what are some of the other things that, that have really influenced you? Um, what are some of the other, like, what are some of the specific resources that have really been good resources that you talk about? Sure. Oh, well, podcasts, <laughs> you know, um, and I'm not just saying that because we're making one right now. I, I started listening to podcasts in my late teens when I was working on that farm. And I just think it's such an incredible way to encounter ideas that might be challenging or threatening in a way that is low stakes and where we can really think about them. Um, and, you know, a big part of what sort of what my appetite for working with, with livestock um, on rangeland was just listening to interviews with farmers and ranchers and, you know, Alan Savory back in the day. And, um, and I was studying, you know, taking these ecology courses at the time. And so a lot of that stuff sort of checked out, um, the relationship between ruminants and prairie ecosystems. And, um, I think we are in a sort of golden age of, of learning, um, and sharing because of how many new voices can be heard and how many new ways we can encounter information. And that sounds really kind of cliche, you know, I'm sure people started saying that about the World Wide web back in the late eighties, early nineties, but, but I think podcasts in particular, because you can listen to them while you're working, you know, you're listening to driving, yeah, living in a tractor, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's a way of taking in information that for me is I'm more likely to remember because I have all these other sensory reinforcement. I've been, you know, riding around the ranch to come to a particular spot and just a fact or a bit of sort of semantic knowledge will pop into my head. And I realized it's because I was listening to a particular podcast when I was last covering that fence or something. Um, so that's, that's one. And that's an easy one. Um, another one that has been really valuable to me has been online groups, online Facebook group. Um, and I, I started to get on the internet when I was in my, like, I think I was eight years old. And, uh, so I've, I was an early adopter. That was in the late, late night relatively early adopter and, and found my way by way of like animal husbandry forums, you know, horse forums, mm-hmm. like hermit crab forums and stuff. And um, so for me, a big part of my development, just as a human, but certainly as you know, a grazer and ranch manager is um, the ability to seek out specific information and pose questions, perhaps to total strangers, but people who are almost certainly going to know more than I do. You know, if, if they're replying, it means they have something to say. And 
the quality of that information might not be great, but it's just a good way of casting a wide net. Um, you know, there's a, for example, there's a stockmanship and ranch roping group on Facebook and a regular member of that group is Steve Cody, who is, you know, a stockmanship um, expert and literally wrote the book on low stress stock handling. So, um, you know, we shouldn't all rush on there and inundate just Steve with our questions, but it's a pretty cool thing that someone who is Use the search so bar first, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, absolutely. Good. Practice good, good form at a good yeah. Um, yeah, I just feel really fortunate to be in an age where, um, yeah, where there is a search function and where absolute experts care so much about what they do that they make their knowledge available to other people. Um, so that's, it's another thing, thoughtful use of, of internet forums and discussions and groups. Um, and I've had just some mentors along the way. And I would say I have not taken advantage. I mean, I hate to say take advantage, but I have not, um, gleaned as much from those mentors as I could have, if I'd been more thoughtful about it. Um, but I, you know, people in California, like Spencer Smith and Kent Reeves mm -hmm. and, um, and Richard King and, um, Joe Morris. And just with, with sort of introduction to like holistic management, um, Aaron Lucich, Guido Frazzini, lots of, lots of people who just made their time and minds available to me. Um, that's another thing. And then, you know, you'll notice that I didn't mention any female names just then. And that's because I, I have not until recently had a lot of sort of female peers and mentors in ranching, but the, the women in ranching group, which is now, you know, yeah. sort of hosted by, um, by Western Landowners Association that, you know, I, I once heard it said that, um, I'm probably going to bastardize this quote, but it was something along the lines of, um, well, we have, we have Bethra scheduled, um, good. Next month, yeah. We? I'm trying Good, to get that'll... Aaron. So if you can poke Aaron too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, we'll yeah. We have Beth scheduled next month to record. So Good. really Good. looking Fun. forward to that. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. The, I heard this expression once that was something, it, it was a, a woman and it might've just been a tweet or something, but she said something along the lines of, um, it was in reference to some big idea, some company she was starting or product or whatever. And she said that the men she met told her why it wouldn't work. And the women mm -hmm. she met told her or asked her how they could help. And mm -hmm. um, I don't mean that as any particular job against men so much as I think that there's a particular way that women um, assist in mentor that is different from how men often do. Absolutely. And we need, you know, we need both, but there's so much to be said for just being an advocate and a cheerleader because um, the, you know, any individual human's ability to become their best self, to rise to the challenge, to problem solve, to think independently and autonomously. We all have that capacity, but for many of us, and I think especially women, we've been so trained to distrust ourselves, to have imposter oh, yeah. syndrome, to not even try something, to think we need to ask all the experts first. Um, and that's just an instinct that we have. And so I've been really thankful for so many of my female friends who have just blown that out of the water, you know? Yeah. Um, like Brittany Colbush is a really good friend of mine. And she's yeah. an example of someone who just has done so much self work in addition to spending years in the field and her practice of, of um, contract grazing that she just, when you're around her, you just feel energized and reminded of your own capacity and to be yourself because she's much herself. Um, so that's a resource that I think is undervalued in 
ranching, especially ranching that's a little bit against the grain, but I think is just someone to say, you know what, you can do this. I'm here to help, but you can do this is, um, that's really impactful. Um, and I, I mean, there's so many people like it specifically that, and I would like to, but that would take most of our time. I I think Um, once we kind of get toward the end of what we already have scheduled and planned out, um, mm -hmm. we're definitely going to want Brittany Cole Bush. So good. She might listen to this. So Brittany, email us and let's set something up if we don't hear from you <laughs> If soon. you can get uh, her to sit still long enough, that's the challenge. Oh, yeah. With folks like, folks like her, um, I'm trying to, I mean, I should also, to give absolute credit where due, you know, when I met my partner, Sam, I met him because the ranch that I was working for had, uh, had a land base and was looking for, potentially for a manager for it. It was a larger piece with more cattle and far away from where I was. And um, Kelly Mulville at Piscinus Ranch suggested that I, or I guess I, I wrote sort of a job description and forwarded it to Kelly and, and asked him to share this with my be interested. And he sent it to George Witten and a lot of your listeners will know George Witten. And, and then George Witten sent it to Sam and, and Sam and I struck up just sort of a professional correspondence for a while. Um, and that was how we got connected. And so I didn't manage to hire him, but I, you know, we did end up <laughs> kind of um, throwing in our lot together. And at the time I was, you know, I'd been working with cattle pretty independently for a few years at that point. Um, and I grew up riding horses casually. So I was comfortable with some of those things, but to go Mm -hmm. from working on small, somewhat productive California ranches, um, you know, working at sort of a boutique scale compared to a lot of places to then working on a, you know, at that time we were on a hundred thousand acre lease on a a Apache reservation, you know, where we manage horseback and it takes forever to get anywhere. And you're on rangeland, you know, big pastures, semi-arid area. And that was, for me, it was a huge, um, like punch to the gut, like in terms of ego check. And Mm -hmm. I knew it would be difficult, but it was more difficult than I thought it would be just to, to ostensibly have skills in a domain and then get there and not feel very useful. Um, but having come through it with a really good partner who has taught me so much about, you know, starting horses and working with dogs and all these things that I had a little bit of feel for, but not nothing to the degree that I now use those skills. Now that was a really challenging time. It was, it was kind of like running the gauntlet, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think agriculture is so tricky because there's a lot of sort of, um, how to put it. There's a lot of norms in resources that are not in place in agriculture for a lot of different reasons that many other industries have. And so to step out and grow and find opportunities for yourself requires a lot of putting your ego on the line and a lot of falling on your face, oftentimes mm-hmm. literally. Um, yeah. And I don't want it to be that way. There, that'll always be the case for to some extent, just by the nature of the work. But I think it's really good for us to try to, you know, work with the realities we have now, also trying to innovate and brainstorm on what ways can we make this more accessible to more people who want to do the work and who are committed, but come from different backgrounds that don't have the skill set, but have the passion. Um, because we just need more entryways to the work we need yeah. on the ground. And, and that's why the show exists. Right. So. Right. Yeah. And I right. have, I have noticed some of our great like grazers or that have a holistic approach, their actual, when they're speaking employees now, they're like, we don't care if you don't have the skill set, you have to have the right mindset and then we can give you the skills. And that's almost more valuable for them to have someone who has the passion and drive to learn. Mm 
mm-hmm. than someone who who maybe has a skill set but not not the right mindset because you can't you can't get um, over that hurdle of someone who's not going to understand why you do what you do. Absolutely, and I mean, my biggest um, I've historically been my own worst enemy in my growth in agriculture just because I through through how I was raised or my own making or you know obviously always some combination of both but I'm the kind of person who like I want to do it right the first time and I get really down on yeah. myself if I don't know how and and you know it's hard for me to just jump in if I don't understand what the goal is I want to know the whole picture first and a lot of that stuff you just have to kind of set aside um because mm-hmm. it it just doesn't work to have things there's there's you know, on the one hand, we can do a lot better to train and initiate employees and develop them in a way that's thoughtful and responsible and safe. And at the same time, right. there's just no manual that you can read to be fully prepared for everything. Um, and a lot of times, as you're saying, people who have people who have a little bit of experience with something, um, it's like Dunning-Kruger syndrome, right? Like they, they think they don't know what they don't know. And so they end up causing a lot of wrecks and, you know, we're all entitled to our mistakes. Like they're bound to happen. But if you're causing expensive wrecks on someone else's dime, then that's of course pretty challenging. So I think. And and there's a point where you have to check your ego at the door and realize that there's things you don't know and admit that you failed or admit, admit that you don't know. And then use some of these resources that you've talked about, you know, like that stockmanship forum, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or we're listening to some podcasts. Uh, you know, Ariel, I got to say, you were probably one of the first 100 or 200 people that I found and followed on Instagram when I started up my Instagram account. And it has been very enjoyable watching your journey for the last six or seven years um, <laughs> through your post as, as you've grown and developed. Um, so you talked about doing some daily moves and running reels and moving polypipe in California. And that's an operation that I am intimately familiar with. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so now that's a big change uh, to what you're doing now, managing much larger herds on a much vaster landscape with horses and dogs. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some grazing management um, and soil health from horseback. What are you doing cool. to move the needle? Good question. Well, I mean, the biggest outstanding question is, are we moving the needle? Because all things equal, really good management can do that. But when we are, you know, we, we started this, this particular lease at the start of the year, we moved all the cows and equipment and horses and whatnot from, um, from the aforementioned Apache reservation pier just a little over a year ago and came into a land base that, um, I think historically has been managed pretty well, probably pretty conservatively. So minimize damage in terms of, I think it had been stocked pretty much set stock, but grazed lightly but probably overgrazed the last few years. And especially in that transition period when owners knew they would be leasing it out, but they still had their own cattle there. Um, as we all know, sometimes it's the last little marginal period of time that can be a big impact for better or for worse. So um, grass is really short right now. And we destocked um, pretty significantly as much as we felt like the company could withstand. Um, and Basically, as soon as Sam and I got back here, we started to craft grazing plans that took into account um, the use from the prior grazing seat, prior dormant season, um, and just sort of uh, tried to project ahead, factoring in what, like how well we left it in the past. And um, that's kind of a clunky way of saying that, but a, a big factor here on this particular ranch is we have 
um, thousands of antelope and herds of up to a thousand elk. Um, so probably well over a thousand elk because there's different. So that makes it pretty challenging to both plan for plant recovery and plan for a stockpile. So our attitude has kind of had to be one of let's just treat the, the elk and the antelope as, as just a fact of life, you know, which means what we do with the cattle really has to be on point. Um, so, you know, we've, we've tried to plan it to where we're, we're grazing dormant grass as late into spring, as close to summer as possible. Ideally, you know, in my ideal world, and it's really hard to get here, but I would love to be grazing, effectively grazing, like always have a year's worth of grass ahead of me, but to get there takes really careful management and really managing those margins incrementally bit by bit. And it's, it's just getting, it's, it's a game of inches really. Um, and so we, we've planned on trigger dates for when we might have to destock more if we don't get sufficient snow or rainfall. Right. Um, you know, ideally we wouldn't be relying on spring growth at all, but I think just with the circumstances, we'll probably have to be grazing. I mean, cattle are always going to graze spring growth if it's in the pasture, but um, we're probably going to have to be utilizing some of that as part of for, you know, the forage they're intaking um, and just hope that over time we can build it, build things back up incrementally and always have more grass than we have cattle. Um, right now we have cattle pretty scattered on this ranch and we brought back um, someone who's worked with us in the past and managed cattle with us in the past, who's pretty familiar both with um, our sort of style and ethos of management and our way of working with animals and we get along really well. And so he kind of works on another part of the ranch and we work on another. Um, so we've had to add in personnel just to manage, just because we've had to scatter cattle across the ranch more um, because of that drought situation. And um, there's a lot of things that we're doing though, just as a matter of course. Um, so we're trying to locate and place cattle in pastures so that we'll utilize grass that they otherwise would be less likely to. And we're doing that through a mix of water development through um, fence development. We're putting in a, a high tensile fence right now that's be pretty compatible with the significant elk presence. Um, just herding and trying to get cattle responsive and well-trained and comfortable moving out, you know, um, comfortable leaving and going out to graze and placement of um, self-feeding supplements. So predominantly blocks and especially lick tubs. Um, are you I think moving those, those are... around to adjust grazing distribution a little bit? Pretty much, yeah. And that, that comes more in the form of, you know, we'll, we'll put a tub out and once it's, you know, those things weigh 250 pounds. So once it's eaten down enough, it can pick up and move it. But yeah, that's, those are kind of our tools right now. Um, and we're using all of them. We're putting in about eight miles of high tensile fence right now in a pasture that currently is 27,000 acres and cattle tend to just kind of pull up in the very bottom areas and nude that. So, um, and we have cattle that we purchased this spring, the company purchased this spring because we needed to expand the herd. And some of those are taking a long time to integrate sort of into our program until, you know, they can bunch up and gather and move calmly. But it is really fun seeing them change. It really is often just sort of a few cows who, who knows what happened to them in the past, but the rest are pretty open to, to learn changing and settling in. And yeah, we, um, right now we have cattle kind of where they're going to be for, um, the next probably six weeks or so at least, um, because it is dormant season, right. but, um, we, we took a lot of, a lot of work getting, coming back from Montana, getting everyone where they needed to be for weaning and pregging, having these different groups of calves and cows and bulls and then shipping everyone. Um, so come spring, we'll start 
really moving cattle around, not just within pastures as we're doing now, but into new pastures. And, and it's a big ranch. We work mostly horseback with, with dogs, like I said, and we try to think of our, our dogs, especially as being a pretty critical tool for stockmanship and they can make your cattle worse or they can make them better. Um, so we're trying to really be thoughtful about how we're doing that as we develop our dogs, develop our horses. Awesome. So briefly touched on herding. You said something about, you know, herding. We got into a little rabbit trail about how to move cattle around to different parts of the pasture by moving their supplemental and protein and whatnot. Um, you mentioned herding. So are you guys out there on horseback doing any doing any herding and trying to place cattle or any kind of in herding techniques like Glenn Elzinga talks about instinctive migration grazing that Bob Kenford and Ricky Kremers are pretty high on? To an extent, yeah. You know, I won't claim that we're doing exactly what Bob instructs. And I love to learn more from him. I've, I've watched his DVD and there's, there's, I think there's probably a lot to it that would just need to be experienced firsthand. Um, but in terms of the principles behind that, um, yeah, I mean, we, our strategy right now for cattle, we want to move around within pastures is um, we'll typically set out a, a lick tub, for example, um, ahead of time, and then we'll gather cattle up whether at a water point or make sure they have a really good drink before we move them so that they're not just going to leave to go to water as soon as they're placed. And so we're usually going out late morning um, so that everybody's had a drink if they want it or can get a drink and be comfortable if we take them to water. And then we just try to get them gathered and pointed where we want them and um, try to be pretty thoughtful about, um, you know, I have no trouble using um, pretty good pressure or force when appropriate with cattle, but I think it's it's a particularly important stage how they're handled when you're taking them to where you want them to stay. So um, so we'll get them gathered up and um, take them sometimes up to a few miles, um, often a little bit higher elevation. Um, and we try to take them a trail that they're comfortable taking, not which isn't always going to be you know the straightest route, but take be mindful of the contours that they're traveling and how they might kind of fall off a, a hill down back down to the bottom and um, and I think that's, that's been helping and we need to do it more. And of course that in conjunction with the fence we're building will be extra effective, but it helps the cows that are already adjusted and it really helps the cattle that aren't quite with the program yet. Um, but then, so we'll take them to uh, a place where we've got some supplement set up and then we just try to slow them down and let them start to graze, you know, find that supplement and then wander off and start to graze and um, maybe even bed down if, if, they're to that point or if they've been grazing enough and we'll often dismount and just kind of settle in with them for 20 or 30 minutes and then we leave. And, you know, we're doing that about once a week right now. Um, we might have to start doing it more. Um, but that seems to be, it's working well enough to justify the time. And fundamentally we need to be utilizing some of the grass that historically has gone underutilized just by pastures mm -hmm. being so huge or limited water or understocked. And there's lots to learn. I feel like I learned something new about you know, angles and techniques and movements and gestures and, and my dog, body, my, the, body the dog posture and, and approach angles. Yeah. And yeah. 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 Just the last time I, I tried something new and it kind of worked and um, there's aspects of it that didn't work. And I was dealing with some cows that were wanting to leave as soon as they saw me and take others with them. And I couldn't quite, I didn't have the clearance in the terrain to get up ahead of them. And I didn't just want to send my dog because she's still a little too fresh. And so there's all these factors where it's like, here's the principle and the theory. Um, and of course, people make it look really easy, you know, when they're 
working with two-year-old doggies in a, you know, in a, a corral, but take it out into the real world. And, and it's, that's where it matters most. And that's where it's often the least obvious. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad to that Sam and our other guy, Jeff, are, we're all kind of of the same mind and committed to the same things. And the most frustrating thing is when you're trying to do something and you have people along who, who, for whom it's just an outing and don't really think about how much their actions are affecting the cattle. And, um, and frankly, you know, a lot of the things we do, you might not see a difference in the cattle and how they behave unless you're really looking for it. You know, we're, we're trying to find these little leverage points that we can manipulate to get the results that we want in the cattle and to make their lives easier and to make our lives easier and thus the range easier. Anyone who's not looking for it is just going to say, I don't think it makes a difference. You know, look, that cow's fine. <laughs> They're moving fine, you know, but the more I do it, the more I notice the tension behind the animal's eye or the, the flick of their tail or the angle of their head and their ear and, you know, how tight their back muscles are. And there's so many things, that, you know, the more you look, the more there is to see, but it takes really looking and assuming we don't quite know what we're seeing as we're looking. You just have to slow down and mm -hmm. stop and look and listen to what the animal is really trying to tell you, I think. Mm -hmm. so and we totally underestimate cattle too. I mean, I think that, you know, I don't have any interest in trying to quali qualify or quantify how intelligent or not they are, but the reality is that there's just so much more to them as a species um, than we often recognize. And I think we, because they're so domesticated, we think that that's limited their range of complexity. And I think if anything, that's expanded it because we've left our thumbprint on them. So why would we want, not want to develop and deepen that relationship? I, I totally agree. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, we, we got to backtrack. Um, I'll lead you down many rabbit hole, many rabbit trails and some badger holes. We while like we're it. At it. Oh, that, we, we love rabbit trails. That's fine. <laughs> Um, if we never get where we're going, it's just a good reason to have you back. There you go. So you're in Northeastern New Mexico mm -hmm. and you know, we're recording this and it's not going to come out till probably about the end of, end of March, I think is what the, uh, or end of February, at least is what the release schedule is not March. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. So literally last night I was, uh, I was talking to a gentleman that's offering me a herd of cows and he's south of you in, uh, I guess it would be Southeast New Mexico, uh, right along the Texas line. And I know that whole country is droughted out and I don't, it, it's a horrible situation. Um, and I, and I feel like that drought's kind of not going to go away at any time. So let's talk about why this eight miles of hot wire and water development is important for the impending drought. Mm. Well, we're in the drought now, but I, I hear your point. I mean, this is a landscape that's prone to it. And you, some people would say it's a landscape that is just permanently in drought because of how degraded it is, you know, in terms of the, the soil cover, the plant community, and the ability to make good with the rain we get, we're set back pretty far, I think. Um, I think it's paradoxical, but the, the less grass we have, the more we have to manage it. And it's in the dormant season, it's interesting because, you know, there's a little attitude sometimes, like I've often heard it said um, in some sort of holistic management circles, I think incorrectly or in a way that's misunderstood that you can't overgraze a dormant plant. I think that's true from the perspective of you can't cause a plant to shed roots the way that you can in the active growing season, if my plant physiology understanding is correct. But structurally speaking, that, um, that residual plant really, really matters. And um, there's a point at which when we get so short 
in a landscape that can be really hot, extremely windy, and right. really heavy rain events that um, when the not only does the, the ground not have cover, but there's just not enough height of stubble to, to slow down the wind, to slow down the water, to collect snow, you can just end up in a downward spiral that's hard to, to pull your nose back out of. And um, I haven't been grazing long enough in New Mexico to know exactly what that point is, but looking around a lot of these ranches in parts of this ranch are right up against it or worse. So um, the funny thing about scale though is like, you know, if you've got a pasture that's 27,000 acres, in the case of this one, we're splitting up, you know, if 10% of that pasture is looking really bad and needs, or, or is, is headed that direction, well, it's 2,700 acres. Like that's, that's big, yeah. that's bigger than a lot of people's ranches. <laughs> Granted, this land is not that productive, but that's why the margins really, really matter. And in drought years, if you're leaving half inch behind versus an eighth of an inch, that really matters, you know? And I think there's this tendency that humans do in our minds where um, a situation seems bad. And so we just want to look away. We just want to throw up our hands and get our drop payment and say, there's nothing more I can do. Um, but we need to be doing the opposite. The harder a situation is, the closer we need to be looking. And it's, it's hard to look at rangeland that's degraded, that's battered, whether from cattle or elk or historic drought or any combination. Um, like personally, I feel it on my skin. Like if, if a land looks like it is hurting, it's hurts me physically. And I think that's the case for, you know, I think that's been the case for, you know, indigenous land stewards for millennia. And I think that's the case for a lot of ranchers and grazers also where we begin to feel with the landscape. And I guess where water and fence and placement comes in is, um, speaking strictly from the perspective of the structure of the plants, not, not talking about TDN or animal, you know, what they're, if they're getting enough fill or anything like that, speaking strictly of how mm -hmm. the animal's interacting with the dormant feed, if we can get them to spend more time grazing and impacting uh, parts of the ranch that can take that impact and still sustain their nutrition and keep them off of areas that are already just beat down and grazed down, then we're distributing impact in a way that is going to salvage some of the areas that are really hurting, um, especially considering areas the elk like to come in and hang out are often those really beat down areas. So it's like the elk are already going to beat that up, you know, and, and we're the, you know, it, it, we're humans, we're managing domestic cattle that we've manipulated over time. It's our job to take responsibility for our impact landscape. The wildlife is to do what it's going to do. Um, and that's, it's just an interesting psychological phenomenon that I'm, I'm paying attention to more and more where the worse the situation is, the less we want to acknowledge it. Um, right. Reverse that and support each other and looking closely at, at what could be a train wreck, then we'll be able to make the right. marginal incremental decisions that have exponential, um, the potential to have exponential change. Right. I don't know if that really answered your question, but I think, I think that that's, I mean, to me, it makes a lot of sense because I think we've trained ourselves to have a coping mechanism that fosters like destruction like even mm -hmm. like in our personal lives and mm -hmm. I think about like you don't you shouldn't run away from this you should see this as an opportunity to like how can I not destroy this and how can I improve this I mean if you get 10% increase of change 2,700 acres that's huge like that's yeah. that's the goal right so that that's what I mean we should put it in context that's what we're working towards mm -hmm. yeah and and I think the just the stock day or animal parade animal day per acre concept is so critical for that. And um, a lot of people in arid or semi-arid rangeland don't think about 
don't think in that way because yeah. I think it, it, the thought is, well, you're running so few animals per acre anyway, um, so few animals per per hundred acres anyway, then why think down to the decimal point? But like, no, that's that's why we do it. Montana right. is a lot more forgiving in many ways because where we are there is higher rainfall and um, it's a short but pretty intense growing season. And um, those ranches have been, the larger one in particular, Wyatt, when he was running cattle there before he started to contract with, with other people and with us, he was able to slowly build up the reserve of residual grass there. And um, that has made all the difference. So we're to the point now, um, especially on the larger ranch and increasingly smaller ranch that I kind of run where when we turn cattle out, they're able to eat dormant feed um, mm -hmm. alongside the washing new stuff. And when they're, you know, when you have in some cases, 1500 head of 700 pound yearlings turning out in one herd, it's really important to have just that cushion underneath their, their hooves, especially on places that have higher clay. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the difference between, you know, that's why we all say, well, are cattle good or bad? It depends just like anything. <laughs> and uh, I think that I, I like talking about the mechanical piece of animal impact because that, you know, you can be grazing in, in a way where you have long, you know, high intensity, but long rest periods and still be setting your range lamp back. If, yeah. If, if a manager is not paying attention to what the land is like that they're coming on and what they're leaving for the next go. And you're, you're, you touched on something that uh, a couple of our previous guests um, that we've discussed about, you know, pugging and compaction from herd effect. Mm -hmm. And, and some of the things that we've been hearing and what I'm starting to come to understand is the more loamy and sandy your soil is, the less compaction is an issue and the faster you can drive the carbon pump. The, the higher clay you have, the more sensitive you need to be about herd effect and, and stock density when you do have moisture to avoid a pugging or compaction situation like that. Mm -hmm. That checks out with me and my experience. Absolutely. Right. In California and in that ranch in Montana, it's those kind of soils, they remember, they have a long memory. So if you, yeah, if you mess it up, it. yeah, they recover, especially if they have high rainfall, you, but it might be, you might be seeing tap-rooted annuals for the next three years in places that get high impact. And, and for me, I, I don't have any problem with a small percentage of a ranch, you know, around water points or critical corridors having, just being a little weedy, if it means that that enables you to manage the whole, the majority more effectively. But those areas are really instructive. And, um, and I think, I also think, I mean, this is a tough pill to swallow, but I, I think those of us in these sort of ambitious plant grazing communities need to be able to acknowledge that some ranches, if our goal is to rehabilitate degraded rangeland or pasture, or our goal is to get, you know, more productivity or more diversity or both, whatever our goal might be, the best way to get to that goal might mean not grazing a ranch every year or not grazing a part of it every year. You know, we have our mind linked to this production cycle that is on an annual basis and somehow resets every 12 months. And that's just not the reality in nature. The, the cycles in nature can be much longer. And um, economically, that can be really challenging. But if we are insisting that we graze a ranch or a pasture every single year or more than once a year, but our monitoring feedback is telling us it's not advancing where we think it should be in terms of 
ecologically or its productivity, then we need to think about rest as a critical tool um, because it, it's not always an appropriate tool, but sometimes it is. And we're, I think we're mm-hmm. so wary of over rest that we forget to use it on the times when it is an important tool. And, and I think that timing of the rest and recovery you know, in in more brutal environments, obviously, I'm not in as brutal an environment as you are there in New Mexico, but, you know, I'm still fairly brittle here with variability of rainfall and, and dryness, generally. Sure. I think that, you know, in, in sandy, brittle, brittle soils, you know, the management is, is so much more critical because, you know, once that needle starts to move, it just starts going and it goes fast, but right. you have to be able to find find those keys to move the needle and the variability of rain uh, from where you are to where I am, I think you're exactly right that, you know, we've got tied into this annual production paradigm that, you know, mm-hmm. these things happen every year. Mm-hmm. I, and I was just thinking that, you know, like in 2019, I was really wet and I was really cool you know, or way high on rainfall. The grass mm-hmm. was all washy. Mm-hmm. Places where I had good stockpile from previous year, cattle did okay, but where I was all on new growth and it was really washy, they were lacking for the dry matter. And some sure. of them actually went backward. The sure. yearlings didn't gain very well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, I've been we, there. We, yeah. And we have to look at these things and say, well, okay, that's why this happened. Yeah. It was a wreck that the yearlings didn't, you know, barely gain three quarters of a pound a day for 120 days. I mean, mm-hmm. that was almost a mm-hmm. catastrophe, but you know, looking back now, we know why that happened and, mm-hmm. you know, we can talk about it and we can learn some other ways mitigate that so so we come up with strategies so it doesn't happen again yeah something spencer smith um mentioned to me a few years ago was always stuck with me and when he's teaching people holistic plant grazing he encourages them to have a goal every year for each pasture um and i think that's really thoughtful and the smaller ranch we run in montana has really kicked me in the butt in that respect and really forced me to consider it pasture by pasture because um, the land is so variable there in terms of its historic use that you'll have a pasture that is just degraded and just covered with a few weeds. And then right on the other side of the fence line is something very different. And um, I would, I'm, I haven't done this yet, but I would love to get to the point where I could rest a meaningful percentage of the ranch every year, even if it means overgrazing a path, another percentage. I don't know how much that would be, depending on how pastures are laid out partially, but even if it means in the short term, overgrazing or you know part of the ranch causing temporary damage, you might say, to get enough up under our feet on that other part. Right. Where then when we come back, we're on an upward positive trend with just material we can work with. The other thing though is I you know I think a really important part or a really useful part of our approach to management is um, and it's nothing uncommon. It's I think pretty common, but just trying to graze every pasture. Um, differently every year to whatever extent we can. Of course, there's some pastures, it's like you're going to receive cattle and you're going to turn out and they're going to be there after you wean or whatever the case may be. But to whatever wiggle room we have, um, because because if, if we're just trying to get more and diverse expression of different plant species, which isn't always the goal, but I think is a valuable direction to go in general, there are some plant species that will not express unless they're in a really short graze down pretty hard pasture. And then there's others that won't express unless they have sufficient, you know, litter and residual. And I realize that those are two different terms, litter and residual and interchangeably. We can go down that rabbit trail if we want to. Um, there's plenty to say about that matter, but, but I, um, there's a website, I think it's the Prairie Ecologist and, 
and he's got some really good good resources for anyone who wants to express explain to a potential landowner that they might want to lease from or work with some of the principles of planned grazing without using it doesn't really use um any of the jargon that we're familiar with but in terms of right. manipulating that variability you know lingering behind and accelerating you know rest recovery getting these different um impacts for different reasons and how the ecosystem in general tends to respond it's he's somewhere more i think in the midwest so it's not applicable to every landscape but it's pretty useful a, a term we've been throwing around lately um might have actually coined it here on the podcast is contextually appropriate management mm -hmm. and um i'm gonna i'm gonna steal the pareto principle here and say that you know 80 percent of what we do drives 20 per you know or 20 percent of what we do gives us 80% of the results. And I think we can almost kind of apply that to, to that idea of contextually appropriate management, because mm -hmm. that means something completely different for me than it does for you yeah. in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And it has a different meaning when you go to Montana. Yep. And I would say, take taking that a step further, not just in the nuts and bolts of, of grazing and our production plan, but I've been thinking a lot um, how in our discussion and language about not just plan grazing, but holistic plan grazing and holistic management, how can we use contextually appropriate language to describe yeah. that, you know, and, and it's, it's something I've been thinking about. I've been talking to Delane at city, who's on the HMI board along with myself and who runs, I think it's called Indian nations conservation Alliance. Um, and he's doing, he's a, um, uh, Navajo and Pueblo, um, New Mexican and, and went to King ranch, you know, King school of ranch management and, and right. has done all the things and all the experience and is working closely with, with Navajo people to try to help them improve their range management and, and cattle production and marketing. And, um, it just got me thinking, you know, he, and I'm speculating a little bit, but there's a lot of things about holistic management that are not going to be cult and how we typically do it. I'll say, that are not going to be culturally appropriate for all the people across the world who manage livestock and manage land. Right. You know? And in some ways, it's an especially useful tool for people who come from a more Western lineage, cultural otherwise, because we have, we're, we're, many of us are so divorced from our communities and cultures of origin, and we have forgotten these life ways and patterns and ancestral patterns of working with land and animals. And so the sort of rubric and, and spreadsheet approach to holistic plan grazing is really helpful for us and how our minds often work and how we do business, do business and interact with the world. It's not going to be the case for every person. And yet the function of thinking in a way that encompasses, you know, all the stakeholders, all the factors that play that thinking that is broad and expansive is something we all need to be doing, but there's just different ways of doing it. That's something I'd like to see the sort of general regenerative agriculture holistic management world expand into is how can we adjust and augment our language and our tools to get to these goals of a holistic, holistically managed land base, but be creative and nimble in how we go about that. And that's a big challenge for me as someone who is, as you can tell, kind of verbose and likes words and language. Um, there's a lot of people where the less you say, the better. And it makes things oh, yeah. we do say, and, and even things like our, our body language and our our tone, those are part of language and, oh, and absolutely. yeah, and those are legitimate parts of language for many people in many cultures, even just, you know, cultures amongst white people in the U S those are all ways of communicating what goes on sad matters and 
that's a challenge for me and my personality, but it's something because I care about ultimately the results in people's lives and the land. It's something that I'm trying to tune into and learn from and and I hope others are as well. That's great. That relearning the ancestral approach to land management. That's a, I love that. Yeah, it's hard. We're, we're, many of us are paradoxically impoverished in that respect. And I'm really glad have, for, go ahead. Impoverished, yeah. not just in wealth, but impoverished yeah. in mm-hmm. knowledge. Yep. Knowledge yeah. and knowledge born of a, you know, not just sort of semantic knowledge of knowing how to do things and knowing specific facts, but knowledge that is deep where the, the connections and relationships aren't, are not just known, but felt. Right. And like, well, as far as like resources, how, how can we, like someone like me who wants to learn more about that in, in, in learning and knowledge, would you have any suggestions on how I could reach out to, to, to better educate myself? <sighs> That's a good question. And I, um, it's kind of question while always, I feel like I'll think of things after the interview. Is, yeah, is ended, you but. know, I, I just think about how this whole 2020 year has gone and like how I've had to like relook at things and, and situations and like, was I raised that way or was my culture, sure. like, was my mindset thinking that way on, and, and I didn't even realize it. And so like, I think one thing I've, I've talked with Brian about is like, I have to learn some, some habits that I don't realize they have or, or mindset mm-hmm. that I, I don't realize I have. And like, I'm always looking for other perspectives to help me kind of have that paradigm shift or, mm-hmm. or even just like uncover that, like, I need to not have these nuances um, mm-hmm. in my life. Well, it's, I think uh, it's such a challenge because, you know, Brian, you and anyone on your show and we're in UCK, we're, tr- we're all bought into this idea of we're trying to oh, absolutely harmonize, you know, the way the world is and the current economic system and all of the things with, with, you know, realities of human nature and with realities of ecology and like no biggie, right. It's, it's only the hardest possible thing, Um, but it's just a day's work though. Yeah. It's it's just, it's just a century, you know, seven, seven generations worth of work, probably if we're lucky, but um, (laughs) I think um, something I've found helpful um, yeah, I mean, there's so much to say on that. And most of the good stuff is probably could be said from someone other than me, but I'll, I'll take a crack at it. I've been trying to apply some principles of relationships with people to relationships, relationships with land. So what yeah. I mean by that is, is, you know, we have a lot of kind of good common sense heuristics about, you know, our, relating to other people, um, things like, you know, don't take advantage of other people, be respectful um, be mindful of how our actions affect them. Right. And also things that are a little more self-critical, like how, you know, how did, how am I taking this person for granted? You know, what is my attitude towards this person? And so on. Mm-hmm. And I think we can turn those around and think about land too. And uh, I think a big part of our problem is we have stripped land and its beings of its, I won't say of its sentience because that can be mistaken, but of its sort of life force. And we have, you know, we've, we've commodified everything and reduced everything to a recently bought and sold. And, um, and that I think is a pretty difficult page to turn, but I think, you know, there's specific strategies and practices we can do, but on simply a attitudinal individual attitudinal level, I think it helps do whatever work is required to regard land as a living source of our our sustenance. And and of course, animals as being part of that as well. And, and fungi too. And, um, and the other thing, though, is um, I think a part of that learning process 
and I feel like I'm still in, you know, the, the very infant stages of this for myself, but I, there's so many people who have re- intact and retained um, cultural ways of relating to land that are just more practical on the long term than a sort of, you know, Western imperialist approach. And, and it serves everyone to be trying to support those people and support their causes, support their access to land and their ability to manage it traditionally support um, them doing that within the context of our current economy and current laws and regulations and so on. A, a metaphor I like to think in terms of is how do I work within the current system to find the cracks in it to sow seeds for a better one. And um, there's a lot of different ways that that work can look like. Um, but I think, especially those of us who are working with with livestock and prairie and rainland ecosystem, it's so recent that that land was removed of its indigenous inhabitants, animals for, in many cases, by and for cattle ranching. And that, that's just the reality that we're living and working. There's no need to ignore that or deny it. It's like, how can we go forward with that? And I'm very excited about that and really thankful. We do have to acknowledge that there is a little bit of irony there. Pretty ironic. (laughs) Yeah, we we did kind of clear it out and ruin it for cattle ranching. But as as it turns out, ironically, the way to fix the problem we... uh, created is by simply with cows, but better managed. Yeah. Cows or in many cases, bison are managing wildlife more thoughtfully. I think for me, I want to see people, I want to see all people who, who feel a need and a drive to live, to find the livelihood on land, be able to do so. And um, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, because we need it and the world needs it. The climate needs it. Biodiversity crisis needs it. And so I think, um, I think our culture, our culture needs it too. Our culture is just so disconnected from the land and food production as a whole that, uh, I think that's pretty disturbing. Yeah. And, you know, right now, as I understand it, the biggest threat to biodiversity in the United States is habitat loss. And a lot of that loss is happening in places that are, you know, prairie grassland, whatever you want to call it, basically, you know, functionally speaking, a rangeland ecosystem, we're losing that to, housing developments and to yeah. commercial developments and to tillage-based agriculture. And so, you know, I, personally, I don't really care what kind of animals we're working with on a landscape. I just think we, we need them out there. We need animals instead of, you know, um, new subdivisions. And there's plenty of subdivisions. <laughs> we, we need to retain what we have and we need to expand it through pretty much through whatever means necessary. And there's so many people who who still have the cultural patterns of how to do that. And, and we can compare notes and work together. It doesn't have to yeah. be, you know, a complete silo. So that's exciting to me. And, and there are so many good people I hope you'll have on your podcast in the future who are hard at work at that. If you have any recommendations, please forward them over. Uh, the, the recommendations you gave me a couple of weeks ago were just absolutely fantastic. And I'm looking forward to getting in contact with, uh, with some and having them on the podcast. Awesome too. So, uh, so what's one myth about you that you'd like to take this opportunity to debunk? <laughs> oh, have I, I don't know if I reach myth status. So I don't know if you have any ideas, you'll have to tell me. Um, well, one thing a lot of people might not know about me, including close friends, is I am very, um, in some ways, newly very interested in, in artwork and painting in particular. And I'm actually working a couple days less per week on the ranch this winter to take advantage of having time in a house with a studio to focus on artwork. And, and I got to say, I 
as a kid, I really wanted to paint for a living. And then I was introduced to agriculture <laughs> and in particular, sustainable small scale agriculture, which can make a martyr out of anyone um, for better or for worse. And so I set all that stuff aside and it's really challenging for me to find a way to value something like making pretty pictures when I feel like the world is half the time crashing down around me. So that's something I've been sort of trying to lean into and explore and try to think, how can I um, use use my art in a way to advance some of the ideas and values that I think are important, you know, whether that's stuff like, um, you know, reciprocity in our relationship with nature or something more brass tacks, like low stress livestock handling, you know, I don't know. Um, I'm not exactly an illustrator yet, but this is coming partly out of the idea that like, I want to be doing this my whole life, this kind of work. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be an agricultural martyr or an activist who burns out and that's not a good way to live for myself. And that's, that's, that kind of attitude is just coming from a very extractive economy that I would like to, to plant. So um, that's, that's just a lead right now. I'm just kind of sniffing under the wind, trying to figure out where I can take that, that appetite that I have. But um, there's so many changes that I hope to see in our culture that aren't going to come through rhetorical discussions on Twitter or Facebook or aren't right. going to come through, you know, well, well, uh, framed um, monologues on uh, in an essay-based format. It's like we need different ways of communicating our ideas and of receiving information because you know, if holistic management teaches us anything, it's that a lot of our decisions that we make and a lot of the reasons our land looks the way it does is through the things we don't examine, our feelings and emotions and attachments and affect that we have to find a different way of interacting. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that the extractive economy and, you know, we've been talking about holistic grazing and trying to regenerate landscapes. So what are some of the things that the average listener that's in a, uh, in a filing cabinet for young urban professionals in a city, what are some of the things that, that somebody that can't get out and work with animals do? What are some of the things they can do to mm. help move the needle? Man. Um, I mean, the first, the easy answer is like, go try to buy grass-fed beef from a local rancher whose practices you value it. That's really important for sure. But I, I think that part of why the regenerative agriculture, it, why it always feels like an uphill battle is that we require practitioners on the land to have so many skills that already exist out there in a lot of other professions. Um, so I don't have a really good specific answer, but you know, I mean, I think Pasture Map is a great example of people who have skills that maybe are not specifically, quote, in the fields, getting their boots dirty and their hands dirty, but it's but skills that nonetheless, your average farmer or rancher, you know, couldn't just design mapping and, and um, record keeping right. software. And like, I never, I'd never want to learn to code. <laughs> like, no, thank you. No. <laughs> I'm so glad that there are people who do and have applied that towards the needs of farmers and ranchers to be able to steward their land and their resources better. And um, you know, and another example that comes to mind sort of along those lines is there's a new project called, I think it's called the Good Meat Project. Um, and the Good Meat Breakdown is sort of a particular program of theirs. And that was started by a woman. Um, her name is escaping me and Beth's going to kill because they're good friends. But um, a, a woman who wanted to, as I understand it, you know, wanted to learn more about where food com comes from and learned to, she became a butcher and learned to break down animals. And through that lens began to see all the disconnects between people and producers. And was just like, this is something that we can solve through, you know, highly uh, attainable and shareable uh, visual information. And 
there's so many ranches that have tried to put together their own little pamphlets and booklets with how to buy beef and what percentage of what and why there's disparity between the, the pounds you get versus the pounds you pay for and so on. And right. this, this just cuts through all of that. Any farmer and rancher can go refer to their customers. They have stuff that you can share that you can use, you know, um, for your own promotion and marketing and, and share. And that's an example of someone from the outside, you know, who didn't grow it, who we'll have to problem. make sure we get that link in the show note page. Yeah, definitely. You know, and um, you can Google it and find it, but I'll, I'll send it along as long as, as well as other stuff too. Um, another person that your listeners might be interested in is this guy, Chris Newman of Sylvan Aqua Farms, who is um, t- like totally, uh, you know, super abrasive Brian's and will say smiling. things. <laughs> yeah, say I things want him on the people. show. Yeah, <laughs> I, good. I, I, I got to get a contact for him. I want to get him on the show. Definitely. He'll say things that will piss you off. He pisses me off sometimes, mostly because of the way he says them, not what he says. Um, And then we can get along. (laughs) Yeah. Nonetheless, any grown up can, should be able to handle hearing things said in an abrasive way that are still true. And and he's doing really good stuff in his um, mid Atlantic region. I think he's in Northern Virginia. Um, That's the case he makes is like, we need to move beyond this thing where the small family farm is, paragon of sustainability there's so many people who have skills and desire to work in agriculture we don't all need to know how to do the books and do the planning and right get the permits for a new building and in you know be able to move cows and test forage and and do all the things like there's so many skills that we can involve other people in and move the needle much more rapidly build a community yeah and that's, that's something I'm excited about too. And Sam and I talk a lot about is how do we, um, how do we forge partnerships based on shared values, but complementary skills and have those partnerships be professional above board, have bylaws and agreements, you know, and learn yeah. from all the hippies and their intentional communities who learn the hard way, what works and what doesn't, how far idealism mm-hmm. takes you and where it falls apart. And in, in many ways, the more we treat agriculture, like a real business provided we are internalizing and incorporating a lot of the factors that externalizes if we treat it like a business we'll be able to achieve our ecological goals way better than if we try to just do the right thing by the environment and sacrifice in the process all of our business relationships too that's great so burning question on my mind hmm. you could have dinner with oh man why i've never asked myself this question so i still don't know the answer i would do for that brian well, I didn't put you on the spot yet, Ace. I know. You're safe for another episode. But it's been weeks that we've been asking this, and I'm like, I still don't know the answer. So I, if you come up with something, Ariel, I'm, I'm impressed because I don't okay. know. Yeah. This is one of those questions that I'm sure in the future I'll be smacking my face and like, yeah. gosh darn, why didn't I? Now I know the perfect answer. Yeah. It's okay. Just shoot from the hip. Okay. One person would be Yvonne Illich, who was a, like, um, excommunicated Catholic radical who had a lot of really cool ideas about um, what he called a convivial society. And was, he wrote a book called de-schooling society and in kind of the connection between um, authority and um, education and what that does to the human mind. He'd be one person he's, he passed away, I think. And, um, okay. But if we can revive him for dinner, that would be great. Okay. Um, I like it. <laughs> I would love to have dinner with Brene Brown. I think that woman mm, has good one. so much yeah. to offer those of us in agriculture, because I think a lot of agriculture 
makes its decisions for reasons of self-protection and avoiding shame rather than advancing something. And she just, you know, offers the layperson so much good stuff for trying to get beyond that. Um, Maybe we should try to get her on the podcast. That would be the best, man. I'll just stumble into that Zoom meeting accidentally. In the, in we'll have you in the that, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take notes. Um, who else? Give me just this. If this, you wanted to come back for that as a special guest guest host, you could definitely. Oh man, that. that is one thing I know that I could do well is talk with me around. Um, you have to mail her like a, a good ribeye or something, though. So um they have so many people kind of dancing around you'll have to edit this part out but um i this i i hesitate to say this because i feel like it could be such a cliche answer but i'm i would be really interested in spending time with like rosa parks or like her yeah anybody you're gonna say alan savory that would (laughs) be cliche rosa parks isn't cliche yeah i've had dinner with savory so she marked that off her bucket list yeah yeah (laughs) I'm good. Um, oh, you lucky dog. <laughs> yeah, he visited the nature preserve. That was good. I tried to ask him all my questions. Um, Rosa Parks or someone like her, by which I mean somebody who, who because they came from a background and lived in a period of time, they did not have a lot of power or resources. Not only took a big risk for what they believe was right, right, but took it in a way where they knew exactly what was on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think that those two things combined that, I mean, to me, that's what defines real courage is someone can really say, I know exactly what I'm giving up. This is not an impulse. I know exactly what I'm risking. Um, I'm very impressed by people like that. And I would love to just like have any of that kind of rub off me. Cause I, I think some of it's strength of character, some of it's their personality, how they're raised. And some of it's just yeah. doing a lot of hard thinking and willing themselves to the courage, point of courage. Yeah. It's awesome. We're kind of coming up toward the end of the scheduled time and I really appreciate you joining us today. Is there anything we've left on the table? Oh, so many things. We should do this again. There's plenty to talk we about. We will do it um, again. Yeah. Yeah, good. I mean, the, I think the question of like finding good mentors and in good work, working situations, there's a lot to chew on there for people. And and also just like, I would love to brainstorm with the both of you and, and any guests you had on, of how can we, um, how can we advance ranching, you, you know, in a way that, that takes the best of intergenerational family farms and ranches, but also opens the door a little wider and has creative arrangements and working agreements and business structures that just, just advances us so much faster towards the goal of people having a good livelihood and rural, rural, rural revitalization and bringing more people to the table, to the land who usually can't be there. And I just think we're scratching the surface and it's, it's an exciting time to be a first generation grazer personally. Awesome. Anything you'd like to ask uh, CK or myself? I, well, the first thought is who, who you would have dinner with, Brian. Surely you have an answer. No, I really don't. Um, Wow. Yeah. I, I, you know, I just, honestly, I haven't thought about this. Um, I would have to say Alan Savory. And I think I'd want to sit down with Stan Parsons too. Oh yeah, good one. Two of them, um, the two of them together again at dinner, I think, be epic. Uh, yeah, yeah. They they both did kind of start in the same place, HMI and ranching for profit, you know. And I've been through both courses, and I, I think they're both terrific. Mm-hmm. But you know, they started in the same place, and now I think it's it's awesome as the, watching both communities grow that mm-hmm. everything is kind of come full circle and all, and, mm-hmm. and he's coming back to us. So I think it'd be pretty cool to have both of them at a table. Uh, not just so I could yak at him, but have a few questions. Yeah, for each and other. Brene Brown to mediate, right? Uh, <laughs> I w- Ooh, 
okay, I'll just cheat and go with that one. <laughs> yeah. You might, if you're going to have those two, you might want to have a, uh, a psychologist there as well. That's probably a great choice, <laughs> especially because of uh, her work about ego and shame and, yeah. uh, and being able to communicate some of those things. So yeah, yeah. I think that that would be perfect. Stan Parsons, Alan Savory, and Brene Brown. Yeah, it's definitely good to, I mean, it's a good practice to try to think about people who've started from the same vantage point and went different directions. And it's not often that we can ask them why, like, why did you go that way? And I think so oftentimes the answer is because, well, this other guy was going that way. And so in fact, people often seem like they're forging in opposite directions, but they're really just trying to kind of round out something for fear of it being lopsided. You know, it's kind of like how siblings will um, become different people because of who, who their brothers and sisters are than they otherwise would if they were born only children. Yeah. And I think, I think it was just like a very, very small difference that, that kind of split the two back in the early eighties. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it was just such a small thing. And like the concept that's in my mind, you know, you can be 95% similar to somebody I'm sharing, but mm -hmm. disagree so significantly over that 5% mm -hmm. that you can't work together. And I think that you know, we've got a better awareness of that and of those sorts of things now. We've got more tools to communicate and share knowledge. So hmm. it, it, that threshold is going to be a commonality. Between I do have, I just thought of another question for you, Brian, um, for both of you. But I think, Brian, you might have thought, you've probably thought about right. this a few times. If you were to design a feedlot, because feedlots play an important part in agriculture as we know it right now. If you were to design a feedlot that had the goal of, fattening cattle as which is the primary mm -hmm. goal but but you wanted to do it in a way that also not only took care of the and attended to the animal's welfare but also to their other sort of psychological needs you know cattle like to explore and rub and whatnot how would you design it well if you're just going to put me in charge of the world and give me a blank check to work with it wouldn't look like a feedlot um we just take all of western kansas put a fence around Western Kansas and get some herders and some water development, maybe break it up a little bit and herd them across. Um, I'm thinking a lot of the farm, you know, current tillage farm ground uh, should all be, you know, could all go to cultivated annual annuals, annual blends, uh, grazing blends that are designed to put not only pounds on animals, but also carbon in the soil and using that in conjunction with a no-till. I think there's plenty of land um, out here in the plains to, to holistically raise far more grass-fed beef commodity production. And me, I'd love to visit that feedlot. Probably smell a lot better than than uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. the ones off I five in Southern California. Oh, I think it, yeah, I, mean, I worked on that one. It smelled great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Well, I have so, plenty more questions I could ask, but that's if if you need to wrap things up, I'd understand. We can always have you back in another time. Good. Ariel Greenwood, the Nomad Grazer. It has been absolutely. A pleasure to have you with us today. Is there any uh, websites, resources, or uh, places you want to send people, products you want to hype real quick before we go ahead and sign off? Um, our website is just grassnomads.com and um, okay. you can get in touch with us that way. I also have arielgreenwood.com, which is basically a blog and I very rarely update it, but I actually just in the past few days am working a bit of an exploratory essay that I think I'll title Practical Pastoralism. Um, that will talk about some of the things we talked about today and your readers or your listeners might find it interesting and be cool if they would read it once it's up, hopefully by the end of a few days. And um, definitely by the time this airs. In yeah, I, I think February. you're on the schedule for third or fourth week, February. Okay. If it's not up by then, then send me an angry email, but it should be up then. And I would love if people tuned in <laughs> and commented and 
and yeah, there's just a lot of discussions and, and sticking points that I think are unnecessary if enough people just kind of turn their attention to it. So I would, I love engagement from, from people that way. And um, I'm not on Facebook and stuff like that that often anymore, but I like email correspondence like that. So um, yeah. I know the touch. only place I can find you is in that stockmanship and ranch road. Yeah, that's that's where I go. Come <laughs> come find me trying to get Steve Cody's attention. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, guys, thank you for joining us, Ariel. It's been a pleasure again. Don't forget to come check us out on Facebook, the Ranching Reboot Paddock. Also, like our page on Facebook. And we're now available on Stitcher, so make sure you tell your friends. And guys, it would really help us out if you'd go leave us a review on iTunes or on Google Podcasts, that really helps us out. And if this message has resonated with you, please share the podcast with your friends. We're excited to keep growing and bringing you good content in the future. Now, next week, we've got a special guest lined up. We've got Mr. Dallas Mount from Ranch Management Consultants. He's going to be telling us uh, some of his perspective and things that he's learned and resources that he's gained over the past few years that can help people get started. So this is Red Hills Ranchers signing off. Another episode of Raging Reboot. Come back next week. Every episode releases Monday morning. <laughs>